Hey everybody, this is Sam, that girl with the curls, bringing you yet another awesome and fantabulous episode of That Girl with the Curls. Um, this is uh, episode 40, which is Lexi Alexander. Um, she's a director of uh, movies you might know like Punisher Warzone and Green Street Hooligans, uh, as well as a uh, Oscar-nominated and award-winning short uh, Johnny Flinton. So uh, she's she's kind of a big deal, uh, sort of a big deal in terms of the comic book community. She will be directing an episode of Arrow uh, shortly. Um, in the in the episode, I believe she says August is when she's going to be directing, and it's just one episode right now. But hopefully, she's going to get more because that's kind of awesome. Uh, anyway, I, I contacted Lexi on Twitter. I really wanted to talk to her because she's so very, she's so much a, a vocal presence on Twitter in terms of uh, the, the the treatment of women and uh, and how uh, female directors have been basically uh, discriminated against in the Directors Guild of America and Hollywood and everything. So um, I knew going into it this was going to be a fairly political discussion, and uh, it doesn't disappoint. Um, my friend JP is also uh, along for the ride, and uh, we, we all get into it about whatever subject. So um, I promise you, you will not be bored. This was uh, an amazing episode, and by the end of it, I was just floored with, with how much we covered. And uh, Lexi is always welcome back. Um, she knows that, and uh, hopefully she will return at some point in the future. So maybe after she directs the episode of Arrow, or when it airs, something like that. I don't know. I'm just putting it out there for people to assume it will happen. But uh, before that, maybe listen to this episode, get kind of a feel for it, and uh, yeah, enjoy. Once again, Lexi Alexander, That Girl with the Curls, episode 40. Enjoy. Another episode of That Girl with the Curls. Uh, I'm Sam, uh, your host, and uh, today I'm joined, uh, you may remember uh, my friend JP from previous podcasts. JP, hello. Uh, they probably don't remember. I'm sure they do, okay. just imagine that they do. <laughs> okay. How are you doing, JP? I'm good. Excellent. <laughs> and uh, joining JP and myself is the wonderful and talented and really awesome director of Punisher Warzone and Green Street Hooligans, uh, Lexi Alexander. Hello, Lexi. Hello. Thanks for having me on your podcast. No, it's it was so fantastic. Just uh, I've been following you on Twitter for for a while now, and uh, it it I don't, you're so you're just so awesome. First of all, on Twitter, I'm apologizing so much for being a fangirl right now. <laughs> That's okay. I, I I get all geeked out about certain types of people, and they're not usually the people we think it, they are. So uh-huh. I, I and you know it's so funny because I, I I mostly feel like I'm just such an idiot on Twitter. I don't even know why people still follow me, and I'm convinced that after fifteen thousand people who follow me. 14,900 have me permanently muted. <laughs> oh, no. Do you feel like you'd be, uh, like, do you, do you like the use of Twitter, like, as a social platform, or do, do you feel like it becomes a hindrance to you at some point? 
Well, it's only, um, it's, I guess it's my own discipline. Like, you know, I, you know, Twitter should be used like a newspaper. You go on your timeline, the people you follow, and you see what you see in the time that you, and the time that you sign on. But I, I don't think everybody understands Twitter yet. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of demands, like tweet more, tweet less, tweet and, and mention me or tag me when you're tweeting about this, but not about this. And I, you know, usually, I mean, it depends on how you send me a message like this, mm-hmm. but I'm at the point where I'm just rude, like, you don't understand Twitter, I'm blocking you. <laughs> you know, but when it's like young women or, or women who just start um, with um, with Twitter and want to get to activism and they don't understand this, I obviously don't just want to be rude, mm-hmm. but I have to explain, like, this is not how this works. But yeah. interestingly, you get to a certain level where you know, you really have to put so much out for people not, for people to even see it. Um, so it's it's kind of like you have to find your own medium, you know. Yeah, it's definitely a, a strange beast that Twitter yeah. is. Because um, uh, when I, I studied in university, uh, I, I have a history degree and uh, also an archivist. So we would talk about Twitter. It's like, how do you archive Twitter? Like, how, how do oh, you... Oh, interesting. Yeah, because social media itself has become an issue for a lot of archivists and historians because it's real-time developments, like, especially with a lot of the protests that have been going on and the rebellions in different countries and everything. Uh-huh. Um, it's at times the most accurate news source you can have, but you also have to be on at a certain time to get, like, the, the stuff that you need. And then there's, like, how do you uh, archive, like, hashtags and all that kind of stuff? Like, it's... It's an interesting animal. <laughs> oh, that is actually super interesting. I never even thought about it from the aspect of archiving, but I saw this interesting German documentary. Um, they gave this hacker who helped Syria. Mm-hmm. He helped Syria uh, um, get some kind of internet access when the government cut off internet. And so they, mm-hmm. they gave him like an award and put his like whatever he built in the museum. Mm-hmm. And they kind of talked about that, how people should, like, history is changing via the internet and via social media, mm-hmm. but the people who are responsible for recording history have not really adapted yet. No, yeah, especially in, in my profession, we always, it's a joke, but it's a reality that uh, we're always five years behind the technology. So by the time we actually catch up to it, it's like, nope, we've moved on, and uh, now all of your media is outdated, and you have to, like, find a way to get it all back onto some other form of media. Um, so it's, yeah, it's always a game of trying to play catch-up, but having no resources in order to do it. <laughs> so. Well, the reality about social media is that any real-time data feed, the only people who are prepared for it are the people who are doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, no, even, even the big companies still don't know how to aggregate all this data in order, like you were saying, Sam, you, you have all of this real-time feed, but even that has to be validated against itself, right? Mm-hmm. So trying to aggregate the data to see where are the trends and what's being actually reported and what's just, you know, white noise. Yeah. It's, it's unless you're on Twitter doing that, it's, um, no one is keeping up with it. Nobody. No, the it's... news media just takes it and invents things to put with it. They're great writers themselves, so... Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're as good at fantasy fiction as the, as the rest of us. I mean, but do you guys do you guys see like I see more and more people uh, tweeting stuff like it's just worthless turning on the news. I just may as well right away go to Twitter. 
No, it's definitely that. I mean, the... I mean, I think because especially when I was in college, uh, like John Stewart was the was the guy you went to if you needed like news, which, you know, which he would he would deny that. But at the same time, like this generation, we're growing up with comedians being more accurate than, you know, the like CNN or something like that. And it's 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 about also knowing we we know that everyone has an agenda mm-hmm. so you just choose the agenda you're most comfortable with right like definitely i always say that i would rather get my news from a financial newspaper than a regular newspaper because mm-hmm. at least they're about money and they're open about it right like, <laughs> so it's just that it's, never occurred to me to be honest because i suck so bad at financials and math that the idea of reading a financial paper gives me a headache but i think that sounds right you're probably (laughs) right about the accuracy of of world news i get nervous looking at the economist so it's just it's like oh god they're gonna tell me about macros and micros and i don't know shit about this so um but no it's uh especially yeah with with the news and everything with twitter it's it is very interesting like and it also depends on who you're following too because a, a coworker of mine was just getting on it to get news about her neighborhood in Seattle and she was just like overwhelmed with all these like other things I was like no if you just want this you can set your own parameters. You don't have to worry about being overwhelmed by it. Well, that's, I think, what we still have to get in people's head because it's, um, I don't think they understand that it should be looked at like a radio channel and turn it on when you want to hear it, but don't call the station and say, I missed that show from three hours ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is what, uh, it's, it's slightly driving me insane. And of course, then there's the whole issue of, you know, a lot of times now, and I'm happy to do it because, I mean, I'm doing it and I started Twitter only, I, I sucked at it when I only talked about film stuff, like I didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, now I'm better at it, but that only started with activism. And so, you know, now it's I get a lot of direct messages about tweeting something specific. Mm-hmm. So that kind of takes over. Like, oftentimes I tweet something, but it's really somebody else who wants to get uh, have me get the message out. And, you know, it, it kind of, you have to, like, decide what you spend your time on. But I'm also having a really tough time saying no to anybody. <laughs> that reminds me. I have a thing that I need you to do. <laughs> um, I mean, do you, do you enjoy being uh, kind of like the, I guess not the mouthpiece, but a, a voice for activism uh, right now? It's, um, I fell into it by such a, it wasn't a conscious decision. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I never said anything about gender equality or diversity in film for almost my entire career until I wrote one single blog that happened to go viral. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought, first of all, I thought nobody would read that blog. And then I thought, you know, maybe, maybe people read that blog, but I'll never write anything like that again. But it just kept going from there. It's like one of the things, like once you say anything, people ask you to talk more about it. And what do you say? Oh, no, I changed my mind. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a, yeah, again, it's, it just becomes this strange, like, snowball effect where, I mean, you're, you basically just, you're, you're voicing your opinion and then someone latches on to it and then suddenly it's just like, you are the voice for all of this. Like, we need exactly. to go to you. <laughs> so. And, you know, a lot of great 
stuff has come out of it. I mean, mm -hmm. I have met more interesting people because of it. I have done some great stuff because of it. And frankly, even within my own industry in Hollywood, people have reached out to me that probably wouldn't have invited me in because of my films, but have invited me in to meet because of my activism. So not... Um, and of course, there's people who will never meet me with me again because of the stuff I say. But <laughs> I ignore those. I, I mean, I you know, I always think I would have not wanted to work with them anyway. So, but um, I guess enjoying is a tough, um, tough way to to describe it. I, I think it's a good thing, and I feel much better about myself doing it. You mm -hmm. know. Yeah, because I saw, uh, so I talked to uh, Kiva Bay a while ago, and I saw that your name is on the uh, the list for the feminist deck. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure, uh, it, not that I wasn't sure, I was like, I saw her, and it was like, oh my god, she's gonna get a card, like, did, uh, did Kiva just kind of come to you with that, and just be like, hey, can I draw you? <laughs> yeah, and I, I was so stunned, because, um, you, you know, I, I still... I mean, obviously, I consider myself a feminist in the sense of the, you know, obviously, you know, in the in the in the word of equality, but not necessarily if you look at it as a word of an activist, mm -hmm. you know, like somebody who actually should get a card in a play deck because <laughs> doing something that other people don't do, you know. Mm -hmm. So that was um, that was quite uh, surprising to me. It's going to be a trading card situation. We're like, how many Lexis do you have? Oh, well, I got the... <laughs> uh, you know, and so that's actually an interesting point because this, this is my thing, right? I think that sometimes we misconstrue activism with fanaticism. Mm -hmm. And sometimes activism is just pointing out the ridiculousness without having to be like, okay... It's my point versus your point, and your point is wrong, and my point is right, and there is no in-between, right? And so I think what happens is the true activists, the ones that people actually want to hear, are like you, Lexi. They're not doing it because they feel like they have to go out and stomp their feet and do it. They're doing it because it's the right, logical thing to do, and it makes sense that, yet, yeah, why wouldn't we want equality for everybody, right? Like, that's... It's not, it's not rocket science. It's just, I'm doing the right thing. Right. Well, there's, you know, there's a, I, I have huge issues and I think that's a for, foreigner thing. Like, if, I mean, I'm not, a, I, I'm an American now, but <laughs> I, I kind of look at myself as like, not, I'm more of a, sometimes I say gypsy, sometimes I say world citizen. Like I, mm -hmm. I never feel quite at home in any of the countries I have passports to. So, so this may be a thing of not being a native English speaker. I have huge problems with the word feminism and feminist because there's so many interpretations of it. Mm -hmm. I think we should award those women who do extraordinary thing for women's rights. We used to have a word, they were called uh, suffragettes, right? Mm -hmm. So like fighting for the uh, right to vote and all of that. Now we have other women who go to great length. Um, you know, what about that woman in Texas with the filibuster for, you know, how many hours she stood on her feet oh, yeah. uh, to turn that around? What was her name again? Oh, I, for I forgot her name, but I know but what you know you're what talking about. I mean, right? So mm -hmm. we have like incredible women who really, there's, in the film business, there's one called Maria Geis. And uh, to me, like, she is the kind of Gloria Steinem of our generation. Like, she does stuff, literally has given up her career um, to, to just fight for equality in Hollywood because she believes that it's actually, a, a lot of people think that's a mundane thing. It's Hollywood, it's a country club, all oh, these privileged people. But no, 
we are the world's number one exporter of entertainment. We're in the world's head for an average of 36 hours a week. Mm -hmm. What we put out and export is actually important. So if we have a, you know, 95% straight white male point of view, that's a real issue. And yeah. so she, in my opinion, we should give her a name versus what I do. So, and then there's other issues with the word feminist that just slightly drives me insane. And I feel like the word has really suffered. And um, I don't know, it just, I constantly meet women who say, oh, well, I wouldn't call myself a feminist. And then I have to explain, well, here's what I've been told it really is. And it's just like, how did this become so confusing? You know? Yeah. And it's, yeah, it, it's a thing where, like, I was trying to explain um, the the whole issue with the uh, Directors Guild to a, a family member of mine, and, you know, he, he's a bit old school, being my grandfather and whatnot, <laughs> so he, he was not necessarily grasping why I thought it was important that the ACLU was subpoenaing, uh, subpoena, subpoenaed, there we go, I talk well, uh, subpoenaed the DGA, and he's like, whoa, what if... What if these people don't want to work with female directors? Like, well, Grandpa, you don't give them... You, that, that's not the point. <laughs> it's like trying... Well, actually, that is the point, because that's illegal in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, you know, there is actually Title Seven. You can't just not want to work with anybody because of their sexual orientation or because of their gender or because of their skin color. That's what people forget. Mm -hmm. He's not so wrong. You know, when he says, well, what about if people don't want? Because that's actually what's happening. Yes. <laughs> Except where he is wrong is that's not legal in the U.S. You mm -hmm. know? Yeah, it, it's just a sometimes it's a hard thing to explain to a, an older, like someone from the older generation, because he, I mean, he doesn't have to worry about this stuff. Like movies have always been for him at this uh -huh. point and television as well. Whereas we're, we're in this, uh, I mean, it's not a, I mean, I don't know, would you call it a new age? where women are starting to really vocalize, you know, what we want and, and also minorities and, and people of color well, and everything. Only on Twitter. And this, this is what I always say. I have to laugh so hard always about people who criticize Twitter outrage or any outrage mm -hmm. and call it the PC police or whatever. It makes me laugh so hard because... You know who those people are? Those are the people who've never been criticized. Those are <laughs> the people who have been given the soapbox and nobody's kicked them off the soapbox. For all these years, they were able to tell us what we should do and what what we should criticize and what we shouldn't criticize. And on comes this new age of social media and people like Black Twitter is like, get that person off that college because he did this and that <laughs> person gets kicked off college. Rightly so, by mm -hmm. the way. I mean, I'm talking specifically, this was a story where a baseball player called this uh, young girl, famous baseball player, I think Demonique is her name, the famous young baseball player who mm -hmm. did such a great job. He called, this, so this white male baseball player who is uh, has a scholarship for baseball, he called her on Twitter a slut. Yeah. Black Twitter went out of their mind, rightly so, and the next day he was kicked off. And, and in other in other areas, it's the comedians, it's the and all those people who say it's going too far with the outrage. Yes, because somebody has given the underdog a microphone, and you hate it, and <laughs> just nothing makes me happier. And by the way, I'm sometimes I look at Twitter, I'm like, well, this really goes too far. But do you think I'm gonna say something? I'm never gonna say something about this. Mm -hmm. There's certain situations where I'm thinking 
really now people get carried away <laughs> criticizing the wrong person. But I'm going to stay out of it because I know what it feels like not to have a voice. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, it's a little bit, yeah, if you've been given a microphone for the first time, maybe you're too close to it and you're screaming too loud. Maybe you have to get used to it, to how you use it and when you use it. But you know what? We're going to give people the right and the time to figure out how they're going to voice it. What I'm not going to do, and I'm not going to let anybody else do it, is tell them to calm the fuck down. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, I, Go ahead, JP. Well, I was just going to say, I agree with you. I would also just issue a warning, because I think what happens is, and this is the chicken or the egg situation, you give someone who's never had a microphone the microphone, and then they... You know, they take that opportunity, as you said, rightly so, to voice their concerns. But there's a difference between voicing your concern in the moment to the point of extremism and saying things that actually move the middle. Because the reality is on Twitter, in the media, in newspaper, all of it, it's one extreme fighting another extreme. And the majority of the population sits in the, in the middle. The, the vast majority of the population sits in some moderate sense of the middle and they're being pulled by one extreme or the other. And I think what happens is sometimes when you're too close to something or you're too passionate to some, something, it is about delivering your message in a way that informs and doesn't turn people out, tune people out. I agree with you in in some way, but you have to remember a lot of people are speaking right. There was never a black Twitter. Where would there have been a black Twitter, like an equivalent of that? Black people never, other than you know Al Sharpton, who who takes most of the money apparently himself that he collects when he goes and complains and puts in front of the camera. There's never been as a collective for them to say you put on a black cast member on Saturday Night Live or we're all shutting off and the next week there's two black cast members out. I agree with you and I think the mob mentality makes everybody uncomfortable. I, I hear what you're saying, but I, I feel like when, when you know, there's a certain group that had the dominance for so long, I think we can give people a break and just let them scream for a bit. Most of the time it levels out. Mm-hmm. But I think what you're getting on this is, and by the way, I'm telling you this as somebody who grew up in Germany, a lot of the African-American racism in America, um, I still have to learn a lot. I, I, for example, know a lot about what it's back in Europe, what the issues is with, you know, Turkish people in Germany, with, uh, you know, Roma gypsies in most of the countries. Like, I would know how to be sensitive around this issue, whereas I think a lot of Americans wouldn't know what thing they can say and can't say. Same for Europeans in America. We have to catch up on, like, you know, what is it we can can do, what is an insensitive joke and stuff. So I have to tell you, a lot of the noise... I'm learning, I'm still learning, and I'm learning a tremendous amount about transgender issues and um, um, any kind of lesbian, gay, straight, any kind of issue that I wouldn't have dealt with before, and suddenly I hear a whole group scream, I'm like, oh, I could have made that mistake, I'm never doing that again. So I think essentially, yeah. essentially it's like you're sitting back and going, oh, good to know, good to know. Yeah, when, <laughs> when certain things start to flare up, you're just kind of like, okay, I, I mean... I, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I guess the, the terminology now is like cis, cis, cis woman, basically, yeah. uh, 
you know, cause I, I don't have the experiences of a lot of, a lot of people. I mean, I, I've been uh, relatively in this, you know, corner of the Pacific Northwest that doesn't get a lot of this sometimes, or we don't see it. Um, and, and so when these things flare up on Twitter, it's, it's just a case, like I have no way of commenting on this except to say like, you have every ounce of my sympathy. Um, but I, and it's just like, you're trying to navigate these waters where you're like, I don't know where I fit in with this. All I can do is offer help where I can. Well, yeah. and I have a, I have a kind of a different problem because I lived in Germany for six years and I've, I've visited most of Europe and I've lived all over the United States and I grew up where literally my environment changed every three years. And I oh, you're a third to... culture kid. Yeah, so I, I had to, I had to live, I had to essentially um, adjust myself to every scenario possible because I could at any time be put into any possible scenario. I lived in low income, high income, medium income, and so. What happened was, I guess, my, 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 what that informed me on is that my personal opinion about it is most people just want to be accepted. They don't want to be treated differently. They don't want to be treated. They're not asking to be put on a pedestal. They just want to be accepted for who they are, and they don't want to be judged one way or the other. And I think what happens, I think my frustration comes in with all of the outrage on the internet, mm-hmm. is that it's a misinformed opinion. It is essentially saying, I see something, and I'm going to respond to it with an extreme, and I'm going to make an overgeneralization. And then it, my frustration is, while your original point is valid, your delivery is so frustrating to me, because it's, 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 it becomes the very thing you're complaining against. It's and and I don't so I don't know how to respond to it because I don't think it's wrong. I just think the delivery is poor, and yeah, I don't know how to just, help that. You, you know, I I mean I hear you, but it's a little bit like saying, you know, it's rough because it's a little bit like saying, well, why in Ferguson people suddenly smashing the windows in, and why can't you pro- protest peacefully? Would you not achieve much more? And it's then white people basically saying to black people, oh, please, you know, don't behave that way. And it's the same when men telling women, well, do you guys have to get so hysterical? And I think every group that's out there, you know, going to an extreme, you know, are doing it probably because, you know, their, their you know, their meter is running over. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, it's been a long time coming. So it's also emotional, and I feel people have a right to be emotional. And I, I get it. Look, I'm the first person to say, you know, because I've always been an out there kind of emotional person. And if I get into a debate, I will really get into a debate with somebody. And people have told me my whole life, you know, Lexi, there's better ways to win a debate. <laughs> but what they don't understand is where it's coming from, or at least if they do, they should. And I'm, you know, watching from the outside certain people and I say, oh, really, they, like, they have to, like, go off about this person who's really an activist and they're really on the good side. But, you know, I, I still think even like saying, well, the way you argue or the way you bring it up comes kind of from a place of privilege. And I just, 
I can see it, but I don't think we should say anything. I think that people will kind of adjust their own mic. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, but, also, nobody will follow them. You know what I'm saying? Not only on Twitter, sure. but in general. Well, and, and, and that's the thing, because, I mean, the all this is stemming from from rage and anger, but below rage and anger are the real problems. The the rage and the anger is just the the only outward expression some people have at times. And but I mean the only the only way you solve a real problem is when you get into the debate both sides are willing to change their mind. And that's I'm not sure that... I agree with that. I have to tell you in my industry Lots of stuff happened because of outrage. I mean, I, I was at a pitch uh, not long ago at a fairly famous, you know, network, and uh, all of a sudden, I don't even know how it came about. I think it was because I was mentioned in an article with a prominent member of Black Twitter about the Oscars. Yeah, it was about the Oscars. They mm-hmm. like, oh, we saw you in this interview, and we love Black Twitter. I mean, just all we want to do is keep Black Twitter happy. <laughs> I gotta say. Sometimes the mob mentality actually changes things, you know, and, and, you know, it's not the most elegant way, but I think that sometimes basically saying we're boycotting every, uh, you know, brand that's advertising in the show, believe it or not, it's helping. Yeah, no, it's... But I think there's, there's a bit of, um, there's a bit of compromise in that. I, I don't think that if you ask any one of those activists if they got everything they wanted, they would say, yes, this is perfect and everything changed to exactly what I want. And I don't think if you asked, if you asked the other side if they were willing to do whatever the mob mentality demanded of them, like put two folks on Saturday Night Live, that they would say, yes, I would have done this otherwise. But I think what both sides can honestly say is, yeah, I got a little and I gave a little and we compromised in the middle. And I think the problem is, and you can see this in Washington in particular, when two sides come to the table and they're unwilling to acknowledge or give or get a little. The, a perfect example of this, not to completely get on a different subject, but this is one that really drives me up the wall, is my wife is an anti-vaxxer. And there are lots of people that I am very close with that are pro-vaxxers, right? And so... No, there's even though a I, mob mentality going on. Right? And so even though I'm on Facebook, I have to mute most of the people on my Facebook because it is a constant battle. And the thing that drives me crazy is neither side is willing to acknowledge what the other side is saying. Ever. At all. Yeah. In any way. <laughs> and so no progress is ever made because there is no compromise there is no working together to isolate how do we solve a problem that we both see and, and do it in a valid way so that everyone feels acknowledged. There, it's simply, I am right and you are wrong, and there is no in-between. And so uh-huh. I would say, yes, you're right, the mob mentality works, but only when compromise is on the table. Well, I, 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 I now so I mean, before you said this about anti-vaxxing, I didn't even know where you were coming from. <laughs> I was like, why, why is he insisting that people should come to the table? This is not what's happening. But now I know your experience. And I've actually, I've watched this from the sidelines. And all I could think of is, thank God I don't have kids. Because I'm actually a very famous anti but anti-vaccine person, but in the dog world, okay, mm-hmm. where pe- dogs get constantly killed with over-vaccinated. 
So as I'm watching this, and my mother is a holistic practitioner who doesn't believe in anything the school medicine does at all. So I, I have really good knowledge of this issue. But as I'm watching this from the outside and see what is going on, I'm like, holy shit, I am so glad I don't have kids because I'd probably be in the midst of this. And it's, it's, it's just, I mean, it, it's dirty. That, that fight is just dirty mm-hmm. in all ways. Yes. And, and I feel it's actually... I shouldn't even say this because I'm afraid of the mob that's getting me. It's, 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 it's kind of unfair towards the anti-vaxxing people, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so... <laughs> I'm, I'm already afraid of the reaction, but I'm just saying right now, I, I, don't, I don't have kids, well, so I don't know what I would do. Well, so everyone knows I have three kids. They're, none of them are vaccinated, mm-hmm. um, and they're fine. They're, they're yeah. okay. As someone with no children and no dogs, I'm good. I'm I'm fine. <laughs> but uh, I think I'll uh, uh, and I, I don't want this to be an entirely like I mean all about Twitter and I mean politics. But this is an interesting subject. This is actually such an interesting subject. No, it, I'm glad you brought it up. It's no, it's it's all good, and and that's the thing because it it, it 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 I was trying to find like a way because. I kept thinking about Green Street hooligans when we were talking about like the mob mentality, <laughs> because it's very, I mean, that movie very much kind of captures a certain type of mentality in terms of uh, how these fans of, um, I mean, American version, you know, soccer, for, you know, football and everything. Um, were you caught up in, in that kind of thing at all, Lexi? I was, but I, um, the, you know, I was, uh, what do you call it here, a latchkey kid, like my mother... Mm-hmm. was a single mother and three kids and so we all had keys around and kind of took care of ourselves all day long and the European schools only go half day so you kind of hang out and um, I got involved with a firm um, you know I wasn't the one doing the beatings or taking the beating I was more like the person interested in taking photos that then were developed because we still developed photos at the time <laughs> and then on the weekend we would all sit over them and say oh look you got this guy on the chin and you got this guy on this so um, I kind of fell into this and it was a fascinating world for me because it actually has very little to do with the sport um, it, it is purely gang mentality and which the gang kind of stands in as a constant that you're obviously not getting at home and as a kind of substitute family. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, not even though I'm a very, very big um, soccer fan, you know, it, the, the, what you do with a firm and why you follow a firm, a firm and fall into it has much more to do with, uh, you know, how you kind of love the brotherhood of, you know, having somebody be there and, you know, show up in an alley when I, I kind of still think as an adult like that, like, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm in an alley and there's 10 guys coming at me and I'd be with a group of people who would stay and who would run, you know? Yeah. But For it, the record, you would be one of the few people that might be okay in that situation because of, <laughs> I am, but of it, your athletic it, history. <laughs> I would be, but the kind of like, you know, compared to life situations, because you're often in an alley sure. with people facing you, by the way, talking about being an anti-vaxxer, <laughs> uh, you know, so 
when you are in an alley and a mob comes at you and you only have a few people with you, you definitely see the mob coming at you is bigger. Like who actually stands right next to you and doesn't move? That That's like, you know, you can take a parable. I mean, you can make that a parable to so many situations in your life. And, and I mean, because what JP brought up with your, your athletic background, because you're, uh, are you a black belt in karate or? Yeah, but that wouldn't have made me very, I mean, a lot of people are black belt in karate. Mm-hmm. I kind of took it to, <laughs> that's my dog. Sorry, that's my dog playing with many things that I'm throwing him so he doesn't bark. No, that's fine. Um, um, so yeah, I am. Um, but you... I am, but I took it to the next level. Then I was a professional competitor in kickboxing. Mm-hmm. And then I, when I knew that I kind of wanted to make a livelihood of it, that was my first plan when I was young. I studied all the other uh, martial arts like grappling and Brazilian jiu-jitsu and all of that stuff and Krav Maga. And mm-hmm. I became a close uh, quarter combat instructor. And actually, that was my first job in the U.S. as I trained in the United States Marine Corps. Oh, Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, because I'm just you know, with that athletic background. I mean, is that same mentality kind of sti- is that very like the fraternal kind of like we stick together, we stand together kind of thing um, that you uh, you you kind no, of actually different because it's a um, one on one sport, mm-hmm. so you don't necessarily have the team ment- mentality there. Okay, but um, where where that actually plays in, which is why I always recommend my friends with kids. And in America, I have to say, especially daughters, to um, to do any kind of sport, but specifically martial arts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a certain confidence that you get out of it and discipline. I saw this horrible movie um, called The Hunting Ground. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. No, I haven't heard of that one. So The Hunting Ground is about the amount of... Uh, rapes and sexual harassments happen in the United States and colleges Mm -hmm. and how the colleges, because they run as businesses, cover them up. Oh, yeah. Uh, And and I I was like traumatized by it. I literally thought, how does anybody send their daughter to a college like that? And I'm now thinking about what I could do to help because it's such a, it's just a really horrible situation, you know? When I saw that you posted a a book that everyone should read, especially women, was it The Gift of Fear, right? Correct, yeah. That is, uh, I would give it to any teenage girl. I mean, it's really for men and women. But Mm -hmm. in this particular situation, I just often now read or get sent info about a certain thing that happened. Like, I'm also friends now with a lot of domestic uh, violence activists. And so, um, I mean, it's, it's not like... Uh, you know, violence doesn't happen to men, but it, it's just that women are a much higher number of women and girls are attacked. And it's also often that it's just the risk is bigger because not everybody is, you know, a close squad, a compact instructor. Yeah. And rightly so. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, and I was going to say there's no denying the fact that there's definitely a societal and cultural persona that that dictates that right like i hear men say all the time well you know i i could easily get attacked or something like that <laughs> yeah but the reality is it's the same argument we make with profiling i'm if i'm a, if i'm someone who's going to attack somebody who am i going to attack right I, my my societal and cultural guidings have told me that this in just my sense of scientific logic, that the six foot, two hundred pound human being is going to be a less likely target than the five foot, five one hundred and twenty pound human being. So, 
I mean, it's it's not. It's well, not that's brain what I science. always say. Yeah, and you know, I don't want to downplay it. That certainly, you know, you know, violence is happening to a lot of people. And this book wasn't written for women. This book was written for everybody who wants to kind of um, get a sense of how do I detect violence could occur mm-hmm. in this situation. And I just highly, highly, highly recommend it for uh, teenage girls and women because if you haven't been around any kind of training um, and by the way I kind of want women and girls like if they if they're not tomboys and they want nothing to do with fighting mm-hmm. or law enforcement you know um, uh, any kind of education in that sense and they just want to be dancers and ballerinas and be you know whatever completely the opposite of what I am I think we should still have that. Like, what is this society where we suddenly have to train all girls like combat soldiers, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but well, since this is an issue right now, I highly recommend reading that book before going to college, you know? I also think there's an opportunity, to your point from earlier about, and now how do you play this forward, that for all, for all students, the first year of college really needs to be reinvented. I think it's become something that not only is poorly um, preparing um, 18 and 17 year olds for life. It's not even really adding to their educational value at this point. So if we can reinvent the freshman year of college to be more of a life experience, I mean, I'm someone who I've told my wife repeatedly, I would actually like my children to take a year off and join the Peace Corps or, or do something that allows them to see the world slightly differently that will prepare you better for those situations. Maybe not physically, right? But at least mentally to, to make sure that you don't find yourself in certain situations and to understand what is going on around you. No, we, uh, when, I was, when I was traveling uh, in, in Europe, we were in, uh, we were in Venice. And a friend of mine, she, she, I mean, she desperately needed to use a bathroom. And she was just going up to people and randomly, like, she would just be like, you know, bathroom, bathroom or whatever. And this one guy, like this kind of, I mean, it was in the sketch area. He was just kind of like, oh, follow me. And she starts following him. And I'm just like, no, you come back here. You do not just wander off with some dude because you need a bathroom. It was, I mean, she stressed me out so much doing that. <laughs> I was like, protect yourself, woman. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but even like that, I mean, the, yeah, I agree, JP, the first year of college really should be. I don't know anything about how American college works, so I couldn't say anything to what people actually learn. Here. It doesn't all that much work so much as it's... it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's an opportunity. And there's quite a few people that are trying to address that problem. But it, again, it goes to what you were talking about, about giving young people the opportunity to to learn about awareness of their situation. And it's not just training them, combat training them, right? And it's not doing that, but it's about having a certain awareness that, you know, I feel like all of these little awareness changes play into the societal change that eventually maybe causes people to not want to attack that 18-year-old girl, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, it's, a, it's a mentality that, it's a shared mentality. Yeah. Right. Well, but you know, there's a, I think there's big issues here still about frats. I mean, I couldn't believe when I heard that uh, that frats sing that song on the bus. I mean, I, and other people were like, "Oh, this doesn't surprise us at all." And, and it, I'm sorry, but it totally surprised me. I honestly didn't think there's a bus of a fraternity that sings an N-words uh, song. 
You know, the, the systemic stuff uh, within, especially American universities, is just, I mean, you, you go back, I mean, it all stems back to, you know, race relations and, you know, gender relations and everything. It's, it's all, it's just a mire of awfulness sometimes. Yeah. Well, uh, I agree with you about the Peace Corps. I'm trying to talk my nephew into doing like a gap year volunteer vacation kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I like to me, it's so obvious. It's going to look better on your resume, and you learn so much more. But you know, I also have to remember that when you're 19, you 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 just want to do the Route 66, and you think that's cool. You know? <laughs> he read Jack yes. Kerouac, and he was like, "I'm going to do that, right?" He's like, it's just going <laughs> to. I'm having nightmares about he's really going to do it, and I'm like, you realize you can't even drink under 21 in America. But oh well. So, Lexi, let me ask you this. With all of this activism and having been an actress and having been traveled the world and been a director, how does all of this now inform your writing? Is it Does it get to the point where it's too many voices in your head and you're <laughs> over-critiquing it? Or can you tune it out to lose yourself in the story? Or do you need to feed off of it to write? Well, it's funny you say that. <laughs> I would say of all things, um, my writing has probably suffered the most lately, uh, ever since I've become an activist. And I'm actually still trying to figure out myself why that is. I mean, there was a great, great phase where I actually sold quite a few scripts. And, um, you know, when you're a director and you take on a job, you kind of get pulled out of that and you, you know, drop it for a year because all you're thinking of is this movie. Mm-hmm. Um and then when you try to get back to it, you know, things happen and um, it sometimes flows and it doesn't flow. I've noticed, though, that this is definitely, it's keeping me, um, you know, I'm just not as as much of a natural anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know what to say. I'm kind of like um, at a loss about it myself and I'm trying to figure out what's what's the issue here you know also because I'm an activist for a lot of things but usually male stories come to my head like mm-hmm. my first movie that I broke in with was about a boxer um, you know Green Street was about only guys and I grew up in an all guy world every story that comes to my head is about a guy mm-hmm. and so now here I am this activism saying why are we only filming <laughs> guys you know <laughs> so I'm trying very hard to adjust but you know, the truth is, in a true equal world, um, there should be room for, you know, a Rodrigo Garcia or Paul Feig who, who, who tell stories about women beautifully. And there should be room for female writers, directors who tell stories about men beautifully. And but that, we're just not there yet, so it's confused me as well. Well, it's one of those things, because I, I remember there was an article that came out, I mean, it was a while ago, but it was about how we especially women, um, we're trained to basically basically identify with the stories of others before our own. Um, because everything is kind of related to like male protagonists being the default for a lot of television shows and books and movies and everything like that. So that when it comes around to like trying to create a more well-rounded female character, there are times, you know, it's the because the default is so set and ingrained in the culture, people have a hard time accepting that. Um, but the advice from the article was like, just switch the gender. Just if you like, I mean, I know it's, it's so, it sounds so simple, 
But it was really strange because I, I was in I'm I was in the same boat you're in, Lexi, where uh, you know I was trying to write something and I kept only thinking of it as a oh this is a male character this is a male character, and then I was like, okay, well what if I just switch it to a girl and and I didn't and then it was just like oh okay there's no reason why it couldn't be <laughs> it's just it was well, just me and, preventing myself. And the problem that I have and maybe this is an excuse and you guys are gonna totally call me on it right ready is that i <laughs> i find that i used to be able to write and just write and just stuff would come and it would be great or it wouldn't and i would write and do whatever and i feel like as i've gotten older and become a parent and become you know more aware of my world and more in tune to the struggles that other people have that i will write things and i will read it and feel like this is trite and it's not what value is this adding to the world? And then I, I lose my emotional connection to it. And so it almost becomes I only write when I can somehow tie the thing I want to write about to something that I have an emotional connection to. But it, there's so many things in the world, and it's so my emotions are so all over the place that unless I'm writing about my kids, what am I? What is there to write about? Right? So JP, you are so um, full of shit. <laughs> But yeah, and it might be totally that, right? But it's it does. Oh, I totally like... hear what you're saying mm-hmm. because first of all, I've tried to write without an emotional connection because you know I go to a lot of meetings in Hollywood where somebody like wants to meet me because they want to find something to work. I was just at one like a couple of weeks ago, and we somehow I brought up a monster story that really doesn't have much to do with me. It's just an old German legend. Mm -hmm. And the guy kind of like, oh, you know, can you bring more of that? Because I think we'll find something to do and we develop a TV show. This happens a lot where somebody wants to have something specific. And then I try to write it, but because I have no emotional connection, it's actually useless. Like I'm useless if I don't have an emotional connection. Mm -hmm. And then you get to the point though where your emotions about the world, you're absolutely right, are kind of all over the place. And you, I totally hear what you're saying because I often feel like that. And it's it's almost like because you're more open-minded, you have lost your narrow focus that made you actually finish a script and made Mm -hmm. you feel passionate about it do you ever feel like when you're working on something like the more you work on it the more passion you can develop for it or does it often does it slough off more um you know all i know is that i really haven't felt um i once wrote a wrote a screenplay about uh, uh marines coming back from Afghanistan, because I still have a lot of friends in the Quran. So this was a specific story. It was kind of like a dark day afternoon set, mm-hmm. set in present time, you know, about the story that really happened with these guys coming back and with the problem they had with Bank of America, and it was a whole thing. Mm-hmm. And that script sold very highly. I've written that in three weeks. It just came to me. I didn't leave the desk. I literally I had back pain because of it, because I, <laughs> I, I wrote nonstop. And that was the last time, and that's a while ago, um, it, uh, you know, that's the last time I felt like that. I've, I wrote another script about that had an, a Middle Eastern lead, which is I'm half Palestinian, so it's kind of like my other activism and passion. Mm-hmm. Um, so I finished that, but it was slightly slightly harder for me because I wasn't supposed to write a drama. It was very clear that we would write this kind of light, not comedic, but like 
dramedy kind of thing, which is not doesn't come natural to me, but I finished it, turned out great. And, and that's now three years ago, and I haven't since then, you know, I finished stuff, but I, with great, great difficulty, and I also feel like they didn't end up going because there was, it, it didn't, I didn't have, like, a, a connection with it, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, does this also kind of develop uh, through your, your directing as well? I mean, do you do you do you prefer to write what you direct, or does it does it really matter to you? Well, in TV, I like to just show up uh, at a show and direct, and we fought very hard. I mean, I, my team and I fought very hard for that to happen, and that's kind of nice because you can still be a director and not carry the responsibility of you know, it being a box office hit or not, Mm -hmm. um, because it's not really a director's medium, it's the writer's medium. Mm -hmm. Um, In movies, I have to say, I still get a lot of scripts, and my manager's always big on, like, sending me to studio meetings and interviewing on films, but there hasn't been anything. I mean, I don't get offered great scripts, because obviously I'm not one of the A-list people. Um, But even when I was, like, not an A-list, but I considered kind of the town's hot young director or whatever even Mm -hmm. then I didn't get great scripts I'm not sure who gets great scripts you know um so I now thinking back I'm thinking well really I should have just stayed a writer director the idea of ever taking on somebody else's script is kind of ridiculous Mm -hmm. um and I'm not sure that sometimes a young adult book comes up that I say oh I really wished I would direct that, but they kind of kicked women out of the young adult genre, so that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> um, very rarely. Just don't change that stance before you direct some Arrow next year, because we have a very love-hate relationship with that show here, <laughs> and um, it will be nice to have you inform where that show goes, because I feel like it's had some downs recent. We, and I'm hoping that you can help inform where that show goes a little bit next year. Well, you know, I mean, I'm. T- this is coming up. I'm doing that in August. Um, oh, nice. Uh, yeah. So, and, and you know, I'm I'm super excited because the people who run that show are super super nice. Um, but I think there's a lot of because it's me and because when the because I did Punisher and so that made news that I'm doing an air episode. But a lot of people have written, oh, you can save this show and. You know, uh, what people need to understand is that you you really can I mean, on, on specifically on TV, you can, you, you, you know, I can't suddenly start making changes. Lexi, are you saying that you can't just go into the room and be like, look, guys, I got yeah. this from now on? Yeah, exactly. But I think in general, and by the way, I know you guys didn't mean that, but in general, I think people really overestimate what the TV director does. And by the way, that's a big problem for us because mm-hmm. I I think that because people think this is a much bigger job than it actually is, they're not that upset at who's doing it. Um, so it's um, I wish people would understand that it's not uh, it's not that creative, really. Mm. You know. Well, so in in terms of that, what what. What is your preparation for doing something like this? Because to your point, TV more than any medium is a writer's medium, right? Uh-huh. And so, and you're you're going in kind of cold. You you're you're essentially given one tiny bit, one tiny window with these actors, with these characters, with this story. What is your preparation? What is it that you're trying to achieve when you go in? 
Well, you you have like tone meetings with the with the show creators and with the writers, so that they 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 make sure you know what you can't lose. But now, specifically on that show and that team who has that whole collection of DC shows, they actually different than most TV showrunners because they purposely like sought uh, sought me out because I'm a feature director and they kind of don't want just a person coming and showing up and being on automat like they want somebody with you know who can bring something to it but at the same time not changing their main tone mm-hmm. um, so what how I prepare is I really really get into the show I watch everything I probably watch it two three times before I show up there every season and then I also study their camera movements and um, you know, kind of figure out like what people like about the actors, what they've been missing. There's not much I can do about the script. The script will be the script, but you know, I'll you know be able to maybe bring something to it. I honestly can't tell you what, but I'm hoping that there will be something that's specific to me that I can bring to it. I'm hoping there's a fight scene in it because <laughs> I'm actually good with that. <laughs> I think I think it would be a real disservice to you if they didn't give you a, a, an episode that had like a major fight scene in it. Yeah, I know. I'm curious too. And you get the script fairly late, you know. Mm-hmm. But luckily for me, this is a show with extremely nice and polite actors. So they actually don't hate being directed. There's many shows in town who that the actors want the director to shut the fuck up. You you're the guest, okay? Whereas in features, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. They don't want anybody coming in TV a, a lot of times that tells them, "Oh, do this again," or "Do this this way." So this has always been slightly difficult. But these shows are different. Um, all the actors super super polite, super excited to have um, you know a feature director on and. So we'll see. And I also met with the Supergirl people. Oh, cool. So we'll see if that happens. And I kind of like, yeah, I hope I have a relationship with these guys to jump around those shows, you know? That would be, no, that would be amazing if you got to do like Arrow, Flash, Supergirl. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm working on. <laughs> I, As a fan, I will tell you when I found out that you were doing it, I think one of the things you said earlier when you were talking about the brotherhood of, of being in a gang and how you brought that story to Green Street Hooligans. There's there's definitely an opportunity there because in Arrow in particular, there are certain characters and really in any time you get into a shared universe, it becomes a brotherhood, right? Yeah. Um, there, there's a there's a tie between the characters. So as a fan, I was excited to see you in there because I think you can inform that perspective. Um, <laughs> so and if they, I, I, I mean, wish you all the luck in that. If they could just pull in Walter Steele, I mean, because then you could have Colin Salmon back in, and uh, that would be fantastic. Yeah, just, I love him. Just go in there, and be like, "Hey, can I can, can I just make a suggestion? Maybe Walter just shows up for a cameo or something." Because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, oh god, he's so nice that Colin Salmon. Oh, and because I, I really wanted to talk. I mean, I I rewatched Punisher uh, the other night because it'd been a while, and I wanted to like refresh myself, and I just want to say how awesome that movie is Lexi oh thank you thank you it's just uh I mean there's a lot I mean have you seen um Fury Road at this point oh yeah yeah I loved it so I mean Punisher and Fury Road feel to me like a very similar mentality like it's funny a couple of people have said that although I'm so in awe Fury Road but you know of course you know this was his world and you know it was I think from the very beginning uh you know a very cool world dystopia and 
you know, mm-hmm. God fucking hell, I would love to do anything in his world, <laughs> but it is his world, you know. Oh my God, he yeah. just put some random guy on it, but oh God, a lot of people don't get this, this kind of, um, you know, when I hear some of the critics say stupid things about Fury Road, it just drives me crazy because... You know, this is the first time I actually felt like I did when I still loved movies, you know, Mm -hmm. where unexpected stuff happened and it never let up. And, you know, the action was just, there was new stuff, even just guys on bouncy sticks. I know. (laughs) When they go, when they just bring them over and you're just like, this shouldn't be awesome, but it is. Yes, exactly. Um, Um, Yeah, so I'm, and, and, you know, when I got Punisher and the, immediately cut 10 million dollars out of the budget and it was like you know here i had to like compete with dark knight that had 220 million i had 20 million and i said well what can we do with this and it's also so hyper violent in the comic book i instantly thought about hey let's do a throwback to the 80s where everything was over the top and Mm -hmm. that's what it was meant to be and the people who get that they get it yeah but of course you know you know, you can't write a book for every critic saying, here's what we meant to do, and this is how much money we had, and this is the source material, you know? <laughs> oh, that, that would be amazing if that was the marketing plan. It's like, okay, look, here's your packet. If you don't have this read, you can't come and see the movie. Um, uh, I tried it, believe it or not, because the studio actually, the big secret is that the studio liked the film so much that they set up these... Uh, screenings for critics in new york and in la simultaneously Mm -hmm. and i was flattered by that but i told him i'm like look these are i know critics these are people who have never read a punisher magazine let maybe not even any comic book magazine i said should we at least put a one sheet on the chair that kind of shows that most of these shots are literally taken out of the comic book so they don't think i came up with hey let's have a guy drop on the fence and then have a footstep (laughs) i mean you you kind of look at that differently but you know this was given to you mm-hmm. and a filmmaker actually managed to put that on screen uh, versus like oh they just came up with the sickest fucking thing <laughs> on the planet you know it's like what is but, wrong with her it's like well if you paid attention to the book you'd say it's 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 actually the comic's fault right well, yeah, yeah there was this san francisco critic who wrote that i should go to prison for my imagination i'm like Dude. Jesus. <laughs> like, yeah. So now, do you carry, like, so do you carry that emotional attachment or is it done? Like, do you, having put all that effort into knowing the Punisher and making that film, do you now still have an emotional attachment to that character? Because one of the things I think is interesting is you've, you've done a film like Green Street Hooligans that's now had sequels that are not directly related to your story, but live in its world, right? Mm -hmm. And you've worked on a character that has had films before you, has now just been cast to appear in the Marvel Universe again. So it's, it's a story that's going to live, you know, on into eternity. Do you, do you feel like you're emotionally attached to it? Or did you tell your story and then you're, you're, there's not that same attachment anymore? No, there isn't. It's kind of like, you know, an ex-boyfriend that you broke up with and, you know, that person has a new girlfriend and you're like, yeah, good for you. Bye-bye. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's really not, uh, it's, you kind of done with that world. And, you know, the problem in filmmaking is that it all comes with so many arguments and with so many disappointments. Like a lot of the Queen Street actors were real dicks. And it's like every time I think of that time and the fucking 
trucks and like taking care of them, like yelling at them like I'm suddenly, you know, some kind of kindergartner or whatever teacher. Um, you know, it just, there was so much drama always. And this is every movie, by the way. I mean, pretty much there barely is any experience where people don't fucking go to war on set. And so mm-hmm. any of these are never... Whenever you see an EPK, like that thing where filmmakers talk about the experience, you can pretty much guarantee that 80% is a lie. No, they didn't get along. No, they weren't all drinking with each other. No, he doesn't like her and she doesn't like him. And no, the filmmaker doesn't have that much respect for the actors and neither have the actors for the filmmaker. You know, it's all bullshit, really. (laughs) (laughs) That is the best response to a question we have ever gotten. Period. <laughs> like, we'll have to go back, but I'm pretty sure JP's right. <laughs> but I, I did want to tell you my my favorite part of Punisher, and it's just a really, it's so ridiculous. It's McGinty. Uh, when you first meet him and the parkour guys are coming into the, I think, the bar where, Dom, um, where Jigsaw is, and they're supposed to leave, and he's like, do you mind if we use the roof? Like, yeah. just the way he says it, because it's so over-the-top Irish, and and I don't know if the actor was actually Irish or if he was doing an exaggerated accent. He was doing an ex- exaggerated actor. Okay, that accent. makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> it was, just, like, when I watched it again, I just burst out laughing at the delivery of the line. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, and by the way, it was all that. Like, anybody who writes, well, he didn't really, like, that was so cheesy. Yes, that was... <laughs> You know, I mean, there's no world where, you know, I have a guy with actual horse hair in his face. I can't come up with any way for him to say this in a serious manner. Yeah. You know, so people people who say, well, this was just all so cheesy and over top and like, blah, blah, blah. Yes, because there is, the line is actually... I have used horsehide on your face. Like, the, the, there's no serious word where we cannot play this over the top. You know? And and that's the thing, like, nowadays especially, because there's, there's always this weird pendulum that swings in terms of, of what people want in movies, especially with action movies. Because you have movies like Punisher and, um, oh, what's it, Shoot 'em Up and uh, Fury Road, which they know what they are. The movie understands itself. Like, the reality is its reality. And people are either on board with that or they're so off. Um, yeah. And then there's the other way where we're like, we want really realistic and grounded. And, and both are fine, depending on the character. It's- I don't understand that in the comic book world, to be honest. Like, mm-hmm. you know, by the way, I've read reviews of Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, well, that was not realistic. There's a fucking <laughs> raccoon in the movie. Are you mad? Oh I mean, it's like so, it's so wild. Like, just, just go with it. You know, mm-hmm. and you know, if it personally doesn't like, if you don't jive with it, that's your right. But to say, well, why couldn't it have been more grounded? No, you know, <laughs> there's a guy who calls himself Jigsaw. It's never going to be grounded. Well, and it's it's. Well, I feel really bad. I'm sorry, JP. Uh, there, there's just this 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 thing with because especially with Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy and everything, yeah. where he he did that in a bubble of his own. He wasn't like, I mean, that, that's, this is where I get really passionate about it because it's like, it's not like Christopher Nolan set out to change the landscape of comic book movies. He wanted to do his version of Batman, which, you know, it's different than Tim Burton's. It's different than, um, uh, what's his name? Um, the other guy, JP, help me. 
Batman and Robin. Uh, Joel Schumacher. Schumacher. God, there we go. I was in that film. Oh, you were? Mm-hmm. Who were you playing? I also got fired. Oh. Well, you know, I was never really an actress. I was a stunt woman who sometimes got to act, which I didn't like. But um, mm-hmm. there was like this scene where um, Uma Thurman comes in and there's these golems in an empty, empty pool. And actually the main, main golem is played by Doug Hutchison. Who then I hired later to play um, RBJ, but oh around around Duck Hutchison in that golem, there's these four like other golems that that have um, you know that have used a whip chain. Mm-hmm. This like weapon. I was one of them. Oh, but you know, Joel Schumacher hated me. So, well, oh <laughs> I had trouble with that stupid um, contact lens that you had. We had to put in so that our eyes were glowing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were always waiting for me because my eye would I would refuse to take the contact lens and so so he ended up firing me. <laughs> so you didn't. Oh that's oh my god. Well, maybe it's okay because Batman and Robin isn't exactly a staple of cinema at this point. So <laughs> it's essentially one of the ones that we just refuse to acknowledge ever existed. <laughs> um, but there is to going back to your original point. There it the the the. The craziness to me. Look, I watch something like Daredevil, and yes, Daredevil is very grounded, but Daredevil is just a good story. If you called it anything else, it would still be a good story that was well-acted and well-executed, right? Um, And same thing with Batman, right? If you go back and you watch, as much as I didn't like, didn't want to like the Dark Knight films, (laughs) every time I watched them, I was like, I can't not acknowledge that this is just a good movie that was well done. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, comic books are pretty much predicated on teenagers who want to suspend their disbelief and escape their reality. So the idea that comic books and comic book stories need to be somehow grounded in reality to be viable goes against the very premise by which they were built upon, right? But you don't understand. Um, Superman has to be grounded in reality or else we can't accept him. <laughs> no, Superman is just supposed to be a happy-go-lucky guy who happens to have a lot of superpowers, right? Like, that, it, it doesn't... Why does it need to be anything bigger than that? He's clearly why, space why Jesus. Just, <laughs> you know, it just drives, it drives me crazy. I'm sorry. I can't I'll, get, I'll get, get over the fact that Superman is... Uh, nobody realizes Clark Kent is Superman. <laughs> <laughs> the age-old... Even, like, with Arrow, I have to say. I'm like... No, I I always with that like it's just like who doesn't know that Ollie is is Arrow at this point because really he's not doing that great of a job of disguising himself, but yet Lance is the only one who's like I didn't know up until this point. It's like seriously, I mean come on, we all understand yeah. that Commissioner Gordon pretty much knows it's Bruce Wayne. He just doesn't say anything. It's like, right. Um, but you know what? But again, it's all about the execution because the same thing is true of the Flash, right? Mm-hmm. But the Flash totally embraces that. They totally embrace the fact that everyone who would just take a moment and stop and look would figure out that this is Barry. And so, really, the, with the exception of Iris, which is, you know, completely random, <laughs> um, everyone pretty much is like, oh, yeah, I knew that was Barry, right? Like, it's not. It's never a shocker in any time, and everyone at this point knows, right? Like his his is the worst kept secret. 
ever. Now, I, I always find it, because, I mean, as an avid comic book reader with superhero comics in general, like, I always find the whole, will they, will their secret identity be revealed to be just such a non-story? Because it's like, yeah, it's going to get revealed at some point. So why don't we just skip the middleman here and have them tell people, because that's actually more helpful in the long run. <laughs> but that's just me. Those are my hiccups with <laughs> But, uh... But Lexi, we're, we're at over an hour, um, and this has been such a really awesome and cool discussion with you. And so I'm really happy that you came here uh, to, to talk to us. Oh, uh, anytime. This was so much fun, actually. <laughs> Good. That, that's the biggest fear. It's just like, well, she's stuck with us for like an hour now. So. Oh, no, no. I love that. I, I, you know, this was great. Trust me, I've done... Um, I've done podcasts where I was dying in the middle of it, but uh, <laughs> you guys are a delight, and uh, we can do this any time again. Excellent. And and I do want to say that I, I listened to your episode of How Did This Get Made? Oh, that, no, that was fun. Yeah, no, it, just listening to <laughs> you. and because of me, because, you know, anything you do with Patton Oswalt has to be hilarious, and those guys are great as well. Oh, yeah. No, it, it was one of those things where I went back, because I was like, I remember that there was, she was on a podcast or something, and I found it, I was like, oh, this this is good. I loved uh, just every, you know, the, the conversations that you guys, you had about Punisher with Patton and Paul Shear and, and June Diane. Just, it was just really fun to, to get to, hear your side of this stuff so again thank you so much and um and in the future like where can people find you if they want to you know tweet at you or uh at lexi alex at lexi alex okay and yeah. uh and, uh, you will let me know when this airs right or when this is up oh definitely yeah um i i know for a fact it's going to go up uh, on friday that's kind of my normal schedule at this point okay great i'm actually just trying to put a site together where i put all the episodes up that or links to episodes that I've done, like podcasts. Cool. Yeah, no, I will definitely let you know ahead of time when it's about to come out. Um, and, and uh, uh, JP, um, uh, are you following me on Twitter? Am I following you? Um, actually, I have your Twitter up at the moment, and so I am clicking the follow button as we speak. Okay, well, <laughs> I, will follow, I will follow you back. But just uh, just know that uh, I am. I tend to get outraged myself. <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, I, I know it's out there, and I'm, I am I will always be the moderate one. I will always be like, can't we all just get along? JP's like, had to deal enough my, with my, uh, my ongoing ranting at times, so. Listen, I married the, I married the, the crazy person, so <laughs> at this point, obviously I have some sort of I hope she doesn't hear this before you it. get dinner. Oh, she knows. She <laughs> Maybe knows. poisoning it. <laughs> Um, the JP, where can people find you online as well if they want to talk to you? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at J A P A D U A. Um, that's probably the best place because I really don't pay attention, pay attention to anything else at this point. So, you know, just go with that. Uh, and uh, for those uh, who would like to follow me, you can get me, you can get a hold of me at darling underscore Sammy S A M M Y. Uh, you can also go on Facebook and like the page uh, for both Maniacal Geek and The Girl with the Curls, which is, uh, it's just Maniacal Curls, uh, and also on SoundCloud. So uh, once again, Lexi Alexander, thank you so much for coming on, and I look forward to the next time you come on to this point. So. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, goodbye, everybody. Thank you, guys. Take care, guys. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye. Bye.
Somebody has to punish the corrupt. 